Open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Open to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. We continue our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Nehemiah. And we've arrived at the 8th chapter. One of the remarkable proofs of the Bible's inspiration is the fact that it does not read as a book that was written by man. It does not read like fiction. It reads as if it were written by eyewitnesses. It is well selected. In nearly every story, we want more details. Can you think of a single story in the Bible from David and Goliath to the creation of the world where you don't want to read more? There is not a story in scripture where you think there's too much. We don't need all all those words. And that economy of words always drives us to see the main purpose. Here again in Nehemiah 8, we have our attention directed to the act of preaching. And that is surprising because why would you expect preaching to take place in a society that is being rebuilt, that is unstable? For 100 years, the Jews have been rebuilding Jerusalem and Israel. In the book of Ezra, before Ezra was alive, Zerubbabel returned to Israel with 42,000 Jews. They began to lay the foundations of the temple. Later on, another return came back and then Ezra came back. And each time they added more and Ezra collected the national documents of kings, of local governors, of lists of passengers and travelers. He compiles them together and that is the book of Ezra. with A few editorial comments. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah takes his private journals. And he records how he was feeling and what he was doing as The city was rebuilt. And so Ezra and Nehemiah form a story of rebuilding a godly society. What would you do if you had fallen into sin and you were trying to recover yourself? One way to deal with that problem would be to follow the pattern that you see in Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's even a lesson in the timetable. Because they take many years, reminding us that a return to godliness, to purity, and to walking with God is not a simple task. And some of you that are listening to me right now would be born again. Some of you would be baptized. Some of you would be true Christians. It is not a simple activity. It is not like running up to checkers to buy a spare broom. Do you think that a trip to heaven is to be purchased for five rand? Or something you squeeze in at the end of a movie? Well, restoring your life to a godly pattern is not the work of an afternoon or something you can do when you have a few moments. 
And Nehemiah teaches us that. But here in Nehemiah chapter 8, we have, again, one more surprise. Because he's going to dedicate this entire chapter to preaching and its response. This week, we will discuss what is preaching, or what is the place of preaching, or what is good preaching. Next week, Lord willing, we'll discuss the response to good preaching. So today I preach to myself as a preacher. I must reach this standard and you must pray for me. When you hear of a good pastor, you must think of him in terms of this passage and evaluate him in terms of this passage because his most important public ministry is preaching. And this passage explains biblical preaching perhaps better than any passage in the Bible. If you choose a church, you should choose it based off of this passage, and this is from the Old Covenant. You ought to know your church is solid and faithful based on this kind of preaching. And so today I'd like to give you eight observations about true preaching, healthy preaching, Biblical preaching. What kind of preaching will make you to endure to the end? What kind of preaching will cause you to last and allow your children and your family to last? Let's read chapter 8 verses 1 to 8 and then return for the eight principles or observations about biblical preaching. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spoke to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. Upon the first day of the seventh month, And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until the midday. Before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Verse four. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which he had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah And Hilkiah and Messiah on his right hand. And on his left hand, Pedaiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodijah, Masaiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleiah and the Levites 
caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book, in the law of God, clearly. And number two, gave the sense or the interpretation or the meaning. And number three, caused them to understand the reading. Tonight, I would like to address your attention to the place of preaching. What place ought preaching to have in the life of God's people? Look at verse one. Preaching belongs to men with unusual character and devotion. In chapter eight, verse one, they spoke to Ezra the scribe. Ezra would have been older than Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes about 12 years after Ezra. Ezra has been around for a long time. We saw him already back in Ezra chapter six and seven and eight and nine and 10. Ezra has come on the stage, but he is a godly man because in chapter seven of the book of Ezra, we learned that he had mastered the law of God. Preaching belongs to men who are unusually devoted and have unusual character. Young boys in the village will commonly write on their Bibles, Pastor Takarani, or something like that. You be careful before you write that because James 3 verse 1 says, Do not be quick to be masters or leaders or overseers because you will receive the greater judgment. I will be judged and will be held accountable. Because it is expected that a man who holds the office of a teacher or a leader in the church of God has attained a level of character and devotion and comprehension in the word of God. Let me address two points. Ezra was unusual in his character. Ezra was unusual in his devotion to the word. Notice in verse one, he brings the book of the law of Moses. What did he bring? In Nehemiah's day, this would have been the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What author wrote more of the Bible than any other author? I'm not asking for the longest book. That would be Jeremiah. I'm not asking for the second longest book. That would be Genesis. I'm not asking for the third longest book. Now it's the book you think of. What book is it? Psalms. I'm asking for what author wrote the most. Don't tell me Paul, because he wrote 13, possibly 14 if you include Hebrews. I'm asking for what author wrote the most number of words. Dip into the ink, scratch on the vellum. Which author dipped and scratched more than any other author? Unless it was Ezra writing 1st and 2nd Kings. But we don't know because no one knows who wrote 1st and 2nd Kings or 1st and 2nd Chronicles. But some people think it was Ezra writing 1st and 2nd Kings and maybe parts of Chronicles. But if he didn't, Moses, 20% of the Bible approximately, comes from the pen of Moses, a man who had the best education the world could offer. 
he was on the cutting edge because he was raised in Pharaoh's house. And when he reached the edge and realized, I have the best education in the world, and as a prince of Egypt, I could be at the highest position of society, and I could be the greatest man in the world, or at the least, second to the greatest. But he chose the reproach of being a man of God by faith, Hebrews 11 tells us. Moses wrote more than any other author in the Bible. And his books include about roughly 50% history, 50% law. We call them the books of the law because that's what the Bible calls them. And the Bible calls them that for good reason. They introduce law where nowhere else in the Bible has such a concentration of revelation of God's righteous standards. But actually the books of the law are half history and half law. But what is so unique about these laws is that they were revealed directly from God. We could not ascend up to God. He had to come down to us and he did so in the law. That's what makes the Christian religion so remarkable. That's why the Christian religion stands beyond all of the religions. That's why the Islam is a copy, a cheap copy. That's why all other religions have to bow and say, we don't have what you have. You have God who's so infinitely high. He comes down to man and says, this is how I desire you to live and work and have your being. And so the rabbis categorize those laws of Moses under 612 commands. We don't know exactly how many there are, but the rabbis said maybe there are 612 and they tried to categorize these. We'll use that because it's a good reference point. There are many laws. A theonomist was preaching once and said, don't think that 612 laws are many laws. There are over 20,000 laws in the United States tax code. 612 is nothing. (laughs) These laws were given to Moses by God. And these laws reveal what Jehovah is like. We would not know his character unless we had his law to reveal those to us. Ezra is a master of that book. We know those books because in Ezra 7 verse 13, it describes him as a man who had read and mastered the law of God. And now he brings the law in chapter 8 verse 1. What kind of man was he? Look how he dominates the story. In chapter 8 verse 1, he brings the book. What does Ezra do in chapter 8 verse 2? Again, look there. Ezra brought the law. What does he do in chapter 8 verse 3? He reads, if you have a pen, you just underline these. I like to underline two lines under the verb, one line under the subject. That's what I learned in grammar class growing up. Maybe it will help you. One line under the subject, two lines under the verb. That would mean you put one line under Ezra or one line under he, and then under the word read in verse three, you put two lines under that. Then again, in verse four, you would put one line under Ezra and two lines under stood. Ezra stood on a pulpit of wood. In Ezra, uh, chapter 8, verse 5, what does Ezra do? He opens the book. <laughs> Number one, 
Uh, one line under Ezra, two lines under open. In chapter 8, verse 6, what does Ezra do? He blesses the Lord, the great God. We'll see in chapter 9 what that looked like. His prayer. Ezra is the man who leads this preaching time. This Jewish Bible conference. This biblical beginning of a revival. Ezra was a man with unusual character. He was unimpeachable. As we saw in our study of Ezra 9 and 10. When Ezra dealt with those men, they all chose him because, I'm sorry, in Ezra 9 and 10, when the people had committed sin regarding their marriages, Ezra offered them a solution and they accepted it. One reason they accepted Ezra's solution is that they knew his character was above reproach. He was a man completely blameless. And that's the kind of man that must be a preacher. In Aristotle's book, Rhetoric, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, he wrote a book on logic, he wrote a book on ethics, he wrote a book on rhetoric. Logic is how to think correctly. Ethics is how to act correctly. Rhetoric is how to talk correctly or how to speak persuasively. Aristotle, the ancient Greek, wrote a book on rhetoric. When he wrote this book, he said there are different ways we persuade. We can persuade men with our clear thinking. Or we can persuade men with our shouting and our passion and our voice and our face and our tears and our crying and our laughter. We can persuade men with our passion or we can persuade men with our logic. Or he said we can persuade men with our ethos. What is ethos? It's your lifestyle. It's your character. It's what people know about you and how they watch your life. 400 years before our Lord Jesus walked on the earth, Aristotle wrote that of those three, ethos is the most persuasive. That is, you might have a perfectly structured, structured logical argument and you might deliver it with humor and tears and laughter and, and energy and back and forth and lifting your hand and falling low and your voice is up and down. But if people know you're a liar, they won't be persuaded. We see that in the New Testament. Can anyone think of a cross-reference that would prove that assertion by Aristotle? Uh, if anyone could be saved by works, Paul says, I am the more. Okay, maybe in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I was thinking 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 is the requirements of a pastor. There are 16 marks of a man who's called to be a pastor. And almost every one of them, 15 of them, 15 of 16, that's 94% have to do with character. Because if Timothy is a man of character, the people will get the message. Yes, we'd love it if he was a gifted communicator. Yes, we want him to be able to teach. Yes, he needs to sculpt his rhetoric and he needs to master teaching and he needs to study and arrange his arguments and he needs to make his notes that doesn't speak like a fool. But before it all, he needs to master his tongue and his hands and his schedule and his time management and the way he talks to his wife and the way he asks for forgiveness. Ezra had that kind of character. And so in chapter eight, verse one, we see the first observation. 
Preaching belongs to men with unusual character and devotion to the Bible. Chapter 8, verse 2. What is our second observation about preaching? Chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Preaching is necessary for all who can understand the truth. Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women. And what's the third group? Not only men, but women. That's unusual. Ancient documents don't include women. Who are they? They're weak. They can be beaten. They can be pressed down. But the Bible includes, no, men and women have souls. But not only women. Who else is important here? Even the kids. Bring the men. Bring the women. Bring the kids. Nehemiah is going to use this phrase repeatedly. We'll see it again in chapter 10 and again in chapter 8. Nehemiah uses that phrase, men, women, and the other ones that understand. Who are those? Not your pet dog. Bring the men, bring the women, bring the kids. Because preaching is necessary for everyone with a mind and with a heart and with a soul. If you have a soul that can never die, you need preaching. And what does that say for our children? They need to be in church. And in a healthy, mature church, the kids should be in the Sunday morning worship service hearing the preaching. Oh, but they're kids. Send them out to children's church. No, bring them in and let them learn how to be the next fathers leading the assemblies and mothers devoting themselves to their families. Yes, there's a time to train children. And they need to be trained. But they also need to be trained by watching the way dad sits and learns. And the way dad goes home afterward. And the children need to grow up knowing dad always talked to mom Sunday afternoon about what we learned from the word. I just remember that. That was the sweetest memory. I'm now 50 years old and I'm looking back. I'm at the funeral of my dad and I'm looking back. One of the best times was Sunday afternoon when we talked about what we got from the word that day. And when I was six, I couldn't talk much. But when I was nine, I added, I still remember the first time dad looked at me and said, that's right. Good job, Isaiah. Preaching is necessary for all who can understand the truth. It's not only for men or for women, but it is for all who have understanding. And that means as preachers, we ought to Bring our communication down to children. If something is not understandable for children, it is probably not going to be remembered by adults. Because few adults surpass a normal 10-year-old in their listening ability. We might say that that is untrue or sad, but I would challenge you, number one, try being a teacher and asking people, try teaching adults, try teaching an adult Sunday school, or preaching and then asking people, say, two days later, what did you learn? You're likely as much to hear from children as you are from adults. And I'm saying that from experience, having asked many, many adults and many, many children. I asked children just today after I preached what they learned. And then I asked adults. The children answered better. And that was just from today alone, but I've had now over 20 years of experience with this. Verse three, he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. That's our third observation. 
Preaching deserves a significant portion of time. Chapter 8, verse 3. They listened to the Bible being read and explained for four to six hours. Don't complain if I press 60 minutes. These people were listening for four to six hours. All right, let's balance it. Remember, they hadn't heard the Bible for 100 years. These people were hungry for the Bible. They did not have Bibles at home. You have a Bible. They did not have consistent weekly teaching times. What's your excuse? You get to hear the Bible each week. They did not have the ability to send electronically recorded versions of the sermon. They could not buy books readily printed to explain the Bible. They could not travel with taxis and vehicles quickly to meet with other Christians to talk about these things. In fact, they did not have assemblies spread out all around the world. This was the only assembly. These people gave a significant portion of their time to Bible teaching. In a Christian worship service, most reformed, serious, Baptist worship services give approximately an hour, 45 minutes to an hour to the preaching each Lord's Day morning. If you meet again at night, another 45 minutes, let's say an hour just to round it up. That's two hours per week. Two hours of 52 weeks. That's 104 hours in a year. In 10 years, that's 10,000 hours. 1,000 hours. I ask you, have you given a significant portion of your time to Bible teaching? And secondly, does it show? Have you learned 10,000 hours worth? I have a book in my study called Your Brain on Music. The book is written by a neuroscientist. That is a scientist who studies brains and nerves. It's a fascinating book. He's not a Christian. But he shows in that book what happens to people when they listen to music. It's fascinating. In one of the last chapters in that book, he asks the question, is music an issue of gifting or an issue of hard work? And he answers the question, what do you think it is? Could anyone be a musician if they just worked hard? Or could no one be a musician if they don't have the gift? Which is it? Gifting or hard work? Well, I'll tell you what he says in his book. He says every musician that he interviewed and that he was able to read about for research for his book showed that they had to practice 10,000 hours in order to to achieve a status that was worthy to be put in the public air. So if you want to be someone who can perform at a concert with a violin or piano, you're going to have to perform for 10,000 hours. 
She's not here, so I'll just tell you. I asked Amy about this years ago, and she added up all the hours. She has 10,000 hours in the piano. You need to put 10,000 hours into a musical instrument in order to become concert-level proficient. And he goes on to explain why from neuroscience. Because as your body moves in those paths over and over, things change in your brain. Your brain teaches itself, he likes these paths, make those paths bigger so that you can travel more quickly and more, more skillfully over those paths. So if you try to learn the piano when you're older and you think, why can't I move my hands? You need to do that 10,000 hours and your brain will grow open uh, bigger roads. Kind of like the government building small roads and big roads. If the road is small, you can't get many cars on it. But when they see, oh, on N1, we got a lot of traffic. Let's build a big road there. Well, your brain is doing that too when you practice a musical instrument. All that to say, a pastor should be so skilled in the Bible that he has well more than 10,000 hours. And you, if you come to a biblical church, you might push toward 10,000 hours of Bible teaching and you should be equally skilled or maybe not equally, but you should be growing in your skill of Bible doctrine and the word of God. Bible teaching deserves a significant portion of time. Years ago, in the 1970s, Bill Hybels sent out a mail-out flyer. I mentioned this here in this one of these services, one of the sermons I've preached on. Bill Hybels was a, I believe he was an engineer, businessman in the Chicago area. He sent out, mail out flyers to a selection of people in the Chicago area. And he asked them the question, why don't you go to church? And then he compiled the answers that he received from that questionnaire. From that, he built his church. Interestingly, Bill Hybels retired a number of years ago. And when he did, um, he said, one of the errors we made was this. In the surveys, the people said they wanted smaller length of time given to sermons. So Bill Hybels decided to put 20 minutes, no more, on a sermon. Amy and I went to the, the gathering, a very large theater-like gathering that they called a church because uh, they had Saturday services. So we would go, I went to two different ones with Amy on a Saturday because our house was only 15 minutes from this large religious gathering, sometimes called a church. We went there and we heard a 20-minute message and then uh, music that could have played on the radio. So it was very popular style music and concert kind of feel and then a 20-minute message in and out in under 60 minutes. So that man built his religious gathering on the idea that we need to cut down the teaching time. When I mentioned just now, when he retired, he put out actually a public statement that went to the newspapers eventually. And that was, Heibel said, I think we made a mistake earlier on in not emphasizing Bible teaching so much. Yes, he should have read Nehemiah. Nehemiah could have helped him that what you really need, Bill, is more Bible and less entertainment. 
but they multiplied the skits and the drama and the entertainment and they reduced the Bible. And in the future, now the quote church he planted has a woman quote pastor at the head, which we'll see as a point we're going to come up to just now. Bible teaching deserves a significant portion of the public time. Number four, verses three to six. Preaching calls for special respect. Look in verse three. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book. Look in verse four. Ezra stood on a pulpit specially made for that purpose. Then in verse four, you have a list of men that are gathered together. These are leaders of the community and they're gathering together to meet with Ezra. Why? Because every time you add another person to an assembly, you increase the dignity. How would you act if there were 10,000 people present? You would act differently than if there were two. How would you act if there were 100 differently than if there were a million? How would you speak if you had to speak in front of four? How would you speak if you had to speak in front of 40? How in front of 4,000? In each of those cases, you would speak differently because the image of God and man increases the total dignity as the number of people increase. And so when you have a number of godly men standing in front, the dignity is increased. Nehemiah and Ezra planned to have multiple godly men standing at the front so that everyone would know, ooh, it's not just one or two or three or four or five or 10. Let's get over 13 up on that platform. Look at verse five. Ezra opened the book and as soon as he opens it, notice he's above the people because he's standing on a platform specially made for that. That means they took time for architecture just for this sermon. They had to build a structure for this sermon. And then in verse five, when he opens the book, what do all the people do? They stand up out of respect for the Bible. In verse six, they bless the Lord and all the people say, amen, amen. They lift their hands. What else do they do? Notice their bodies. They lift their hands. They bow their heads and they put their faces where? They bow down to the ground. They're bowing with their faces down. They're lifting their hands. They're bowing their heads. Their whole bodies were involved in the response to the preaching of the word of God. You'll see in verse nine, there was something else. The people wept in verse nine when they heard the words of the law. Every part of their body was involved and nothing of their body said entertainment. Their bodies were saying, we are giving our respect to that which is beyond us, to that which is of inestimable worth. It is invaluable. Take our blood, take our lives. This is still more valuable. This is a gift that we could not have had. There is no human artifice that could have discovered this or made this. This is a gift from God, from Jehovah, the one who is the ground of being. I am that I am. The one who has no beginning and no ending. And that thought alone cannot ever be mastered by any philosopher or poet or preacher or singer. The fact that God said my name is I am and yet I will come down and speak to you. I know your language and I'll give you something 
in your language. And the reason it's important that it be written is it can be perpetuated from generation to generation. A gift to all the world, Romans 9 says, through them were given us the law and the covenants. That is, through the Jews, God stepped down and gave a gift for all humanity. And it could not have come any other way. And these Jews understood this deserves unusual respect. We ought to give the utmost respect to the preaching of the word of God. We must not be sitting to critique the preacher, but sitting bow, uh, but in a position of prostrate bowing with our faces to the ground saying, give us something from the word. And, <coughs> and if the man is not a skilled communicator, <coughs> then we ought to make up for it by being even more skilled with our ears than he is with his tongue. We ought to take the responsibility to ourselves to say, oh, give me the word of God. And if the best that we have is this man, then I will get the Bible. When I say if the best we have is this man, I do not mean a man who's living in sin. I mean a man who has character and yet his gifts are small. Maybe at communicating or at teaching. Maybe he's not the most skilled in his teaching, but he's a man of godly character and purity of heart and sincerity in prayer. That kind of man, we ought to be the most skilled of listeners as he teaches. It deserves our respect, number four. Number five, Preaching causes men to understand the words of the Bible. Verse number eight. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now, if you have the NASB or the ESV, you'll have a different translation in verse eight, but you still have three verbs, don't you? Look down there in verse eight. You'll see that you have three verbs, but you have some different connections between them. What Ezra does, though, regardless of the ESV or the NASB, is he shows three functions of biblical preaching. The first is reading the text. The text is the master. I think it's Mark Dever. Perhaps it's John MacArthur, one of these men. Maybe it's even Martin Lloyd-Jones who says the text is the king. That is, whatever passage is being preached is the master. It is the boss. It is the driver. It is the king. It is the head. Not me. I am the slave. This is the master. I come to this and I bow in front of it and I read it first of all. I read these words. I have a humorous book entitled Wildlife in the Kingdom Come. It's about 60 pages long. On the left side of every page is a funny cartoon drawing of an animal. And on the right-hand side is something from the Christian ministry, like the problem passage. The problem passage is pictured in a cartoon form as a warthog with large tusks. And on the right-hand side of the page, the problem passage has a Latin name. It's meant to be humorous. And on the right-hand side, the the Latin name of the problem passage is Thornus in your sidious. And then it explains who is this warthog with the tusks. And, And the explanation is all through the preaching pasture land are these problem passages walking along. And everyone has them regardless of who you are. And that's exactly right. Reformed people have their 
problem passages. They're thornous in your sidiuses. And Arminian people and Catholic people and everyone who tries to take the Bible has some passages that are a little tricky. But a godly man says, I want us to hear all the words, even those words that are difficult for me and for my position. So let's say there's a passage that talks about, oh, their sons and their daughters will prophesy from Acts chapter 2. Oh, that's a little bit tricky. I love it. It's in the Bible, so I love it. Yes, but if you read that passage, maybe someone will say, see there, see there, there's women preachers. It's in the Bible. The Bible's the king, not me. My reformed creed is not the king. This is the king. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 is not the king. This is the king. And I love the Baptist Confession. But this is still the king. First of all, in verse 8, what do they do? Tell me. I'm having you read it right there. They read the actual words in the book, in the law of God, clearly. Now, there's debate over what exactly that word means, distinctly or clearly. But it all works out if you go through each phrase. Some people mean, think it means to articulate the letters because, remember, when Moses wrote, the words did not have spaces or punctuation or capitals. So when Moses wrote, it was like one string of letters. And there is a school that believes there were not even vowel points. Hebrew is written... Hebrew is written as a string of consonants. And then the vowels are little dots underneath the letters. And there's no spaces. So how are we supposed to tell what we're supposed to do here? This could be what? Van to load. Or it could could be Vent lid. Well, which is it? This word distinctly could mean that as they were reading, they were making sure to articulate each word exactly. How could they tell? Well, when you have a long enough string of these letters, you can work out which word is which. And you can read distinctly as they did here. And this is what they did. You say, yes, but that would take time. Exactly. These men took the time. Ezra had devoted his life to reading this. This was before books. So Ezra was very valuable. Not all men could read very clearly. I'm sorry, this is before books were commonly printed for all men to have in their homes. So Ezra could read and Ezra had the book, but not everyone could read and not everyone had the book. Notice in verse 8, what else is there? They gave the sense, or they interpreted it. This is to give the meaning. This is hermeneutics. So not only did he read it, then he came back and he explained exactly the meaning of the words. Look at the next one. He caused them to understand, or so that they understood. Same idea. If your Bible says to understand or so that they understood, it's the same idea as causing them to understand. There's three verbal ideas here. Number one, he read the text. Number two, he explained the text. Number three, he made sure with rhetoric that they understood. It is not enough, pastor, if you say, 
Let me read very clearly. Do not kill. Let's close in prayer. No, you've got to go further and interpret it. Kill means murder. It's okay to kill chickens. It's not okay to murder. Murder is the taking of a soul. Chickens don't have souls. So eat your chicken. People have souls. So don't commit abortion. Let's close in prayer. No, you can't do that yet. You have to make them understand. You have to ask them questions. Have you ever thought about killing? Have you ever gotten angry? What's the difference between anger and murder? Well, actually, we have someone who talks about that. You need to ask questions and pull verses and give illustrations. So those people will not just have it explained to them so that it will strike into their hearts. That's preaching. Preaching starts with the text. It bows down under the text. It never starts with its own ideas and pushes it into the text. It says, whatever this passage says, I'm going to say it. If it says your daughters will prophesy, then I'm going to bow under those words. The daughters prophesy. I don't know what it means. That's step number two. I'm going to come to that. But I'm going to start with this. That text is the king. Daughters prophesying. Acts chapter 2 or Joel chapter 2. I'm going to bow under those words and then I'm going to try to explain them. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to work very hard until I can explain those words. And then when I'm done, then I'm going to press it on the people. Back and forth, in and out. Questions, answers, illustrations. If I need to, I'll give a joke, although this is very serious. So overwhelmingly, it will be serious and sober and hard-hitting. I will not intentionally trying to entertain you, but I will try to press into your souls until I get it. Brothers, some of you may want to learn to preach. This is a very difficult communication style and method. It is going to require every part of your being. And if you've ever heard your pastor preach and he wasn't good, but he's an honest, true man, then pray for him and help him and buy him good books. And if you find out that there's a grace Christian ministers conference, send him to that conference because it is not an easy thing to do this kind of task day in and day out. Maybe he might work one time, one week, 30 hours on his sermon. And you say, wow, that was a great sermon because he worked 30 hours on it and he's exhausted. But that kind of pace is like making a, a, a Nissan 1400 run 130 Ks an hour back and forth from Joburg to Lewis Treecart with a full load. Can't do it. What is preaching? Causes men to understand the words of scripture. Number six, verses eight and nine. Preaching aims at both the mind and the heart. Preaching aims at the mind and the heart. It's rational, verse eight. They gave the sense, but it is passionate. It causes them to understand. Look at verse nine. Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha. That means the governor. Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, the Levites, that taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, because all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And in verse 10, he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. This kind of preaching is supposed to reach into your tears. It's supposed to reach into your heart. It's supposed to make you laugh and cry sometimes at the same sermon. 
It's going to touch your soul, the deepest part of you. I do not believe that preaching is merely teaching. Because Nehemiah didn't believe that. When they preached, they got right into the soul. They went past merely giving the sense. They caused them to understand. Those are not the same concept. Giving of the sense is explaining the meaning. Causing them to understand is touching the soul of the man. So that they weep. So that they rejoice. So that they see the breathless wonder of forgiveness. So that they see God lifted up and they want to see him again. So that they love Christ and think, oh, if only we could sing. Oh, if only we could pray. If only we could serve. If only I could confess and repent. If only I could give more to God. This is real preaching. It aims at both the mind and the heart. We need biblical teaching. We need to go to the mind. We need rational ministry. There's not an irrational ministry like the charismatics who just babble on about all kinds of things with no teaching and no rational connection. But it is more than rational connection. You cannot tell people two plus two is four. You cannot, I'm sorry, you cannot merely tell people propositions like two plus two is four. You're going to have to give them much more than that. Which is why the Bible is not merely a system of propositions. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not love anyone more than they should be loved. Love God. The end. It's poems. It's stories about people living and dying and wives weeping because they don't have babies. It's stories about people like you who give the money but they lie and then they die the same day and everybody's terrified to come to church. But yet the church still grows. Explain that from Acts chapter 5. They're scared to come to church and the church still grows every day. It's stories about locusts coming out of bottomless pits and a rider opening up the heavens and coming back on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, grabbing a dragon and a beast, tying the dragon, throwing the beast into the eternal pit of fire and the dragon into a different pit. And then after a thousand years taking him out, that's not rational proposition. That's not merely rational propositions. That goes a step beyond it to touch the soul of man. And that's what preaching has to do. Number seven. Preaching protects against spiritual falling. For time, I'll just do this quickly. They have preaching right here and they repent. And then in verse nine, they have a time of prayer. I'm sorry, in chapter nine, they have a time of prayer. And then in chapter 10, they make a covenant. We'll see these step by step, but you'll see the preaching dies away. And so 13 years later, they break every mark of the covenant that they gave themselves to. We'll see when we get to chapter 13. Because they lost their preaching, there was a connection between the loss of the biblical preaching and their declension in 13 years. If you lead your family to a place where there's no biblical church, you expect, without a constant stream of biblical teaching, you can expect spiritual declension to come. Do not expect your children to love the Lord. Do not expect them to know their Bibles. Do not expect your grandchildren to be godly Christians if you don't raise them under a consistent and steady stream of biblical preaching. We could say much more about this. You probably know situations from your own life. How helpful has biblical preaching been for you? Think back to the best spiritual decisions you've made. Think back to the times when you felt nearest to God. 
Is it not commonly when you hear a man who's filled with the Spirit of God proclaiming the Word of God with the power of God and your soul was touched and then you went home and prayed and you sang with God's people and talked to another Christian about what you heard from the Word? Number eight, we close with this. Preaching connects the law and its fulfillment. Look in verse eight. So they read in the book in the law of God. I love that, that there's two names there. He not only read the book, he wants to make sure you know what book. What book is it? Take your Bibles, go to the New Testament, Romans 10, verse 4. Romans 10, verse 4. <clears throat> Romans 10 is Paul's discussion of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 9 was God's sovereignty. And in Romans 10, Paul is explaining how is it that sovereignty can see people converted. Look at Romans 10 verse 4. He's going to tell us what the law does. What does the law do, Paul? For, the, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end is the word purpose or goal. I think the ESV puts goal. What does the ESV say, Corne? End. What does the NASB say? End, but it has no goal. The word end there is the word telos. T-E-L-O-S. Telos. Purpose. If you've read J. Adams, preaching with purpose. J. Adams is pressing the word purpose. Telos. Goal. The, the task to be focused on. Christ is the goal, the purpose, the completion, the fulfillment of the law. That is, everything the law was given for drives to Christ. Why? Because of his righteousness given to everyone who believes. So if you understand the law correctly, you will go to who? Christ. John 5 verse 39. When our Lord Jesus is preaching to the Pharisees, he says to them, search the scriptures. You Pharisees, pick up your Bibles. Pick up the law. You've mastered the law. Search the scriptures for in them. You think that you have eternal life. But they testify of me. Who were the, what were the scriptures for the Pharisees? Moses' books. And Jesus said to them, pick up the books of Moses. Go back and look at them. Or depending on the translation, it's tricky with the Greek. It either means Jesus is commanding them, pick up your Bibles and go read the books of Moses. Because I'm in Moses' books. Or Jesus was saying to them, you guys are so foolish. You are reading and searching the scriptures, the books of Moses, and you missed me. I'm there. Either way, it's a rebuke. It works out to be the same thing. Whether Jesus is commanding them, pick up Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Read the books, you silly, foolish Pharisees. Or whether he's saying to them, you fools, you're reading the books all the time and you missed me. John 5 verse 39. Or here's the, perhaps the best one. Go to Galatians 3, verse 24. Galatians 3, 24. <clears throat> Galatians 3, 24. Wherefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to who? So that something could happen. This thing could not happen if that process was not followed. If the law does not bring us to Christ. Two vital points there. We've got to have the law and we've got to have Christ. 
And if the law and Christ are in place, then this certain result will happen. What's the result? We will be justified by faith. Meaning, there's no justification by faith if you skip something in that process. You've got to have the law and you've got to have Christ. Give me those two. The law, rightly understood, moves us to Christ. Can you get to Christ without the law? This is why biblical preaching, point number eight, biblical preaching connects the law and its fulfillment. Biblical preaching understands what Martin Luther understood. He understood that all the way through the Bible, there's this strain of do, do, repent, change, stop your sin. And all the way through the Bible, there's this strain, sacrifice, propitiation, removal of the guilt. Someone else has to take your place. uh, Substitution, atonement. You've got these two strains going through it. Do it, do it, do it. And you've got atonement and substitution on the other side. It is the law that gives you these commands, but it gives you no power. But the law presses you to run to Christ so you can be justified by faith. You cannot preach the law correctly without lifting up Christ, the Son of God, the fulfillment of the law, the end of the law, the goal and purpose of the law. The reason the law was given was to draw us and drag us and pull us to Christ and further and deeper. You cannot preach consistently unless you show the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. This is why it is important that you understand what is the old covenant and what is the new covenant. This is, why we under, this is why it's important that we understand what are the differences and what are the similarities between Moses and Paul. We've got to think on these things. And the Bible has revelation on this and biblical preaching from a skilled man will draw out these things so the people are very clear from the grandma to the child. Ah, we've got the law, but it's pushed me to my savior. May God give us preaching like this in our churches. And may God give us men and women who pray for their pastors to be like this. If your pastor is a godless man, then he does not fit the requirements even of number one. But if your pastor is a good man who's just not as good as he could be or is sometimes boring, help him, pray for him, love him, and be a better listener than he is a talker. May God help us with our ears as he helps the rest of us with our tongues. Father, please bless the word of God tonight. Help us to be biblical and godly and holy in preaching and in listening. Save us from our sins as you promised to Timothy. For in doing this, in preaching well, you will both save yourselves and those who hear you. I pray that the preachers here will be saved. I pray that God's people would be saved.